Good afternoon. I'm Brett McGarry. Greg Mackling, thank you very much for uh, for helping me out yesterday. I had to deal with, uh, I just want to very quickly say I had to, uh, my sister's cat, Frankie, was formerly my cat, and he had to go down yesterday. We took him to Winrose Animal Hospital, and you, uh, I thought I could go, <laughs> I thought I could go to the hospital and 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 put my cat down and then come to work and i was i was, <laughs> I, should, I i don't mean to laugh but i'm just sort of picturing what it looked like as i was sitting there in the room with my phone <laughs> Greg, can you please uh i was a disaster i was a train wreck yesterday and i couldn't i could there's no way i would have been able to come in so greg said yep take uh Take the day and I'll, uh, you know, I'll make it work. So thank you, Greg. I just wanted to say thank you. And thank you to uh, Winrose Animal Hospital, their staff on St. Anne's, uh, where they were fabulous with both my sister and I. So just wanted to say thanks to them and thanks to you, Greg. You're more than welcome. Sorry you went through that yesterday. And when you feel comfortable, I think it's a conversation worth having this idea that our pets deliver this unconditional love and do we get it anywhere else in our lives in the same way a pet can deliver it and you know I think it bears the question was it unreasonable for you to take the day off of work yesterday I don't think it is in any way shape or form there are some people who might be wondering and you know the vacuum of honesty that is the microphone when you feel comfortable talking about it, I think it'd be a great topic of discussion for a half an hour one day down the road I, I fully agree on that because that that's where I was coming at it from I said I can't take the day off for this sure you can and then when I was at the hospital I realized how am I supposed to go to work yeah. so I just went to my parents and I ate potato chips and ice cream and pizza and uh, me and my sister just hung out and so good anyway. call brother and already Jason said sorry to hear Brett one of the worst things I've had to do was put down a pet and I'll never forget having to put down uh, uh, my good friend uh, Wrigley 13 years uh, our family dog and the last three years of her life uh, with first with me then with me and Jackie and then with me Jackie and the kids at three o'clock in the morning, realizing she wasn't breathing and having to take her to the Pembina Veterinarian Clinic and have her, you know, have her peacefully put to sleep and sitting with her. And I bumped into our head honcho of our corporation at the time in the washroom. He said, Hey, Greg, how are you today? I said, I'm not really good, John. I had to put down my dog. He said, What the bleep are you doing here? Really? Yep. Good. Yeah, so uh, we will talk about that one day down the road. In the meantime, we prefaced this by with uh, Jeff Courier about 10 minutes ago, 15 minutes ago. My dad, show, as when I went over there yesterday afternoon, my dad shows me this letter and he says, look at this letter from the city of Winnipeg. And he wasn't complaining, he just found it really interesting. And it's from the Water and Waste Department. Notice of sewer cleaning and inspection on your street in the next two to four days. Dear resident, we will be cleaning and inspecting the sewer on the street in front of your house on one of the dates stamped on the front of this envelope. And this is what what made him raise an eyebrow and made me and Gregory raise an eyebrow. Steps you should take before the sewer cleaning and inspection. Occasionally during cleaning and inspection, air pressure in the sewer can cause water to splash out through toilets, sinks, and drains. Please take the following precautions to prevent water damage in your home. Greg, there are six steps here. You want to read a couple of them? I sure will. Close the lids on all toilet bowls when not in use. Insert drain plugs in all sinks and bathtubs when not in use. Remove all floor mats in bathrooms. 
Place old towels around the base of toilets. If you have a float plug in your floor drain or a backwater valve installed in your house, ensure it is free of debris and operating properly. And finally, wrap the cover of your basement floor drains with thick plastic like a freezer bag. Place something heavy over the floor drains to keep the covers in place. And I just thought, wow, that's a lot of stuff. <laughs> so let's, let's ask the city about this. So we're joined by Chris Carroll, who is the manager of Wastewater Services with the city. Chris, thank you so much for joining us d- today. And uh, like I told uh, your, your friends in the communications department, we're not looking to <laughs> hold your feet over the fire or anything here. But why is this list of instructions so long? Chris, are you there? Oh, sorry. You know what? There's a lot of things happening in our control room right now, so we're just going to try this again. Can we? Do we have Chris on the air now? Chris, are you there? I'm here. Can, did you hear our question? I did. Yes. Okay. Uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, we do. We do like to notify residents uh, of these precautionary measures in, in the rare instance that there could be some splashing of water. Uh, that could come in into, into in your internal piping in the, in the house when we are out uh, doing the sewer cleaning. But I have to say that um, for the vast majority of, of our customers, um, there aren't any issues when we're out cleaning the sewers. And, and most people, uh, uh, for the most part, wouldn't even notice that we're there. Chris, that was my experience exactly. We got the same letter in our mailbox about three weeks ago. And I had a similar reaction to Brett's dad and holy smokes is a lot of stuff. And then I subsequently forgot about it because I believe it was heading into the long weekend when we received our notice. And so I completely forgot about it. Have you had instances where things have gone awry? There have been some rare occasions where, you know, due to, due to some local circumstances, there, there have been some problems with water uh, coming back up through the system. Again, those are very rare instances. It's, it's not a common thing uh, that, that our customers see. And uh, again, we're simply trying to get um, precautionary information out to the customers to prepare, prepare their residents for the upcoming work that, uh, that we're planning on doing. I mean, yeah. When I when I looked at this, I thought, well, this is a lot of steps, but I think it's better safe than mm-hmm. sorry. What happens if, for Greg made an example earlier, what happens if you're on vacation? You know, you're away for ten days, and this notice comes that says this could happen in the next two to four days, and the work is done, and then you come home to find that there has been some splashback. What can you do as a, a resident of the city of Winnipeg? Well, again, if there if you were away and, and there was some splashback, it would generally be just the the water that's sitting in your toilet bowl, or the water uh, that's in your, your your trap underneath your sink. So, for the most part, it would be clean water. Uh, you may get some splashing on the floor. Um, you know, in most instances, the water would probably be dried up by the time you return. So, we're not. We're not talking about uh, you know large volumes of water and, and extensive uh, flooding in a person's home. It would be sort of a splashing type uh, situation. I I, uh, I think for the most part it could be cleaned up with some towels and and uh, some cloths. Chris Carroll is the manager of Wastewater Services, City of Winnipeg. How many miles of sewers do you clean every year, Chris? It, it varies from year to year. We uh, we try to we try to target in the in the hundred kilometer range. 
some years we, we've cleaned up to 150 kilometers of sewer. Uh, some years uh, uh, in, in the low hundreds. Um, and that's our planned uh, cleaning and inspection program <clears throat> that we do generally in, in the summer months. We also do year-round cleaning. Um, those are more uh, targeted to problem areas. When people phone, if they have a, a high sewer issue, we, we do respond to those uh, on a sort of a spot basis. Chris, we're getting a couple of text messages here from our listeners. One is curious to know, who is liable if the homeowner is away and there is damage? Well, that would be something that people would have. It would be, I guess, the quick answer would be a case-by-case basis. Um, so if, if someone was to feel that um, there was some liability on the city's part for, for something that they experienced, uh, the city does have a claims process that the customer would have to submit a claim against the city. And then there's an internal process uh, that uh, our insurance people review and, and a determination would be made on, on in terms of any liability in that case. Well, I want to appreciate uh, the things that you you do on this front, Chris, because uh, regardless of how likely this is to happen, it was great to get the heads up as opposed to uh, having a problem and then being upset about it, at least this way. You've given me all the precautions to take, and it's up to me then to, to follow through or not. So uh, this is, in my opinion, one of those good news things where you're giving me more information, and what I decide to do with it is uh, up to me at that point. Yeah, and that's that's what we're striving for. We're striving to give people notice. If, if customers uh, visit our website, winnipeg.ca, and if you navigate to the sewer cleaning and inspection program page uh, in the water and waste section. We do have a map on there of the neighborhoods that we're planning to clean this year. Uh, so people can uh, can go there and, and look ahead and see if their neighborhood would be affected. And, uh, you know, this is an important program for the operation and maintenance of our sewer system. So uh, we'd like to thank everybody for their cooperation and allowing us to come out and do this work. I just want to also read one final text here, Chris. So this is from somebody who says, I was glad that I followed the suggested steps. When I got home, one toilet lid was totally soaked. If the lid had not been left closed, that water would have been all over the bathroom and my husband would have had a mess to clean. Smiley face. So this listener wants to say thank you to you and uh, your department at the City of Winnipeg. Well, that's great. Uh, I'm glad to see that that uh, people are getting getting the information and and taking the precautions as they as they uh, deem necessary. So that that's great news. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate your time. Great. Thanks for having me on. Take care. Take care, Chris Carroll, Manager Water uh, Wastewater Services, City of Winnipeg. Doug made a great point, uh, Brett. And uh, some people forget about this. Uh, your home owner's insurance. Yeah, just going away for two weeks and leaving your house unattended can be a contravention of your insurance policy. Really? Uh, typically, yes, typically four days at a time is all that's allowed. So if you're going away for a week or two, you may want to have someone in your circle that you trust to go in and check on things and make sure you haven't got a leaky hot water tank, uh, other sorts of disasters going on when you're not around. Because if you go away for an extended period, come home to a disaster like that and nobody's checked on it, you might be in a little bit of trouble. So you might want to check with your insurance company on that before you go away. Great point. Thanks, Doug. So we're we're hoping, we're endeavoring to carry a live news conference from the RCMP. They have details on four people being arrested after a police standoff in Portage La Prairie. So 
looks like that's going to happen any moment. In the meantime, we will pause, we'll have a look at your forecast, and then we hope to have this news conference for you live on 680 CJOB. Next, Brad McGarry with Greg Mackling on 680 CJOB. Just want to give you a heads up that we do now have the news conference. We're going to go to it in a moment, just so you know what the story is. Four people have been arrested after a police standoff in Portage La Prairie. Mounties locked down a street called Oak Bay this morning and surrounded a home in what they called an armed and barricaded situation. So we are now going to Constable Sean O'Keefe, who is live at the Portage La Prairie RCMP detachment. Uh, and are continuing to link that car to other reported incidents here within the Portage La Prairie area. I'll take uh, any questions if you have. What? Uh, both females were being treated now as witnesses and victims to this incident. So can we confirm if it was a hostage situation? Just a lot of people are calling it that. Certainly I can appreciate that's the, the point of view from this. Uh, we look at it as a barricaded uh, home where, where people have uh, put themselves in the home and refusing to exit and uh, refusing any entry to the police. Did the victims, the women and the men, know each other? Uh, we believe that they are all familiar with each other. Uh, we're looking at the direct relation uh, between the, the, the females and the males as well. Uh, we are, can't confirm if it's a familial incident or not. So, obviously when you look at the whole of the home, it's quite damaged. And was that, describe to me, was that the tactical armored vehicle? What happened there? The tactical armored vehicle was on scene here today as a response with the emergency response team. And the damage to the front of the home uh, was in response to entry gained uh, by the emergency response team. Is this home known to police? The residence is known to us and we're looking into previous incidents at that home and any relation that might be uh, held over till today as well. Is there any indication this is drug related? Uh, we would certainly be looking into that as well. Uh, if this is a, a drug related incident, uh, both either being used or being in the home, uh, we would like to have that information. Aside from the use of tear gas, did officers discharge their weapons? Uh, I can't say if they ha- there was a discharge in the firearm. I don't have that information, Matt. Um, the tear gas is, uh, is used as a, uh, as a uh, method of trying to get people to exit the home, to leave the area where they are. They have barricaded themselves. We were uncertain at the time of the call how many firearms were in the home. We just had reports that there was one being uh, uh, inside the home and possibly uh, threatening the, the residents and trying to keep the police at bay with that, uh, that uh, knowledge of having a firearm in the home. The firearm seized? Uh, at this time, we do have one firearm in our possession as a result of the search. Just to get a better sense of the timeline, when were the females uh, they were taken into custody when they exited the home. Uh, this would have been approximately, uh, sorry, I, I can't give you an exact time, uh, Matt, um, but uh, uh, they were arrested as they were leaving the home. As our investigation is very fluid and our knowledge of what their involvement was, uh, we placed everybody under arrest until such time as we could verify that they had no criminal involvement. At what point did you just decide that? Um, sorry, uh, oh, uh, the response for the armored vehicle. Uh, that would have come after our initial response from our local officers uh, and determining that the home itself had become barricaded. Uh, obviously, with a, a firearm in the home, uh, we want to look at police safety as well as public safety. So the armored uh, vehicle is a safe response for us to get closer to the home. Uh, of course, uh, negotiators were also on scene to try and speak with uh, those in the home. And it just provides extra cover for our officers to safely get to the house.
That is Constable Sean O'Keefe live at the Portage La Prairie RCMP detachment. Once again, the, the story here, four people were taken into custody by RCMP after an armed standoff took place in Portage La Prairie this morning. 7.15 this morning, RCMP tweeted there was a heavy police presence in the Oak Bay area of the city. And officials said it was an armed and barricaded situation. They were asking people to seek shelter and not move from their location. Now, in their news release, they now we, we came into that news conference just as the constable was finished reading the news release, so I'll just try to summarize this release here. So around 11.30 last night, Mounties got a report of a suspicious man in a white car in the driveway at a home on Oak Bay in Portage La Prairie. So police went there. They found the guy inside the home was in possession of a gun. So extra, a whole bunch of officers were immediately called in, including the emergency response team, police dog services, negotiators were called in shortly after midnight. So there were four people in the home, unknown how many firearms were involved. Police tried to go in, but they'd actually barricaded the home from the inside. And despite the fact that police were sitting outside telling them to come out, nobody would come out. So police deployed tear gas, and you can see pictures of this at Global News uh, .ca, Global Winnipeg, where the windows look like they've been completely blown out. Um, they deployed the tear gas. There were two female residents in the home, a 25-year-old and a 16-year-old. So they came out and were immediately taken in by police. Now, it looks like they actually had nothing to do with this. Police are saying they were simply innocent people, not describing them, however, as hostages. Uh, they were taken into custody, and it looks like they had nothing to do with this. Two men inside the residence, both 27 years old, they barricaded themselves further, and it was at this point where the ERT went in and arrested them. So that is the sort of the summary. I could go on with more details, but uh, it's very police jargony. So That's the second time in a handful of weeks where RCMP have been involved in a situation where they're asking Portage La Prairie residents to stay in their homes. A little bit bothersome. As you mentioned, uh, Brett, cjob.com or globalnews.ca, and you can see the pic- pictures where the ERT had uh, done its work to try and get inside to apprehend these two Males. We'll take a pause and we come back. We will update your weather forecast. It's Mackley McGarry. Brett's back in the saddle. Great to have him here. Great to have you along as well. 1.35, Tuesday afternoon. Greg and Brett with you until 4 o'clock. Uh, Kelly Moore likes to call it unsocial media. I would say in this case, social media did what a lot of us imagine it's capable of doing when we share a story. Some Canadian retailers are pulling a wasp trap off their shelves because photos online show that it was catching birds on its sticky sides. Phoenix Pike of Toronto used Facebook to share pictures of the trap stick for wasps that were taken by her aunt. She says the trap got seven birds on it, all of which died. My heart hurt knowing that they suffered. And that's how they they had to die. It was it was just it was a sin to see it. Now, Brett, you witnessed me taking a look at these photos on Facebook. I gasped when I saw them, and you had a similar reaction. Yeah, because I I looked over and I just saw 
one picture of uh, it just looked like a bird was had been caught in an action shot, you know, flapping its wings. I just thought that looks neat. And then you said, look at this. And uh, there was a, another picture that showed, I believe it was the seven birds just stuck to this trap. And I said, are they are they all dead? Yeah. And that's I can't imagine going out to your backyard. You put this thing out, which you're hoping will try to make your yard a better place. And then it kills these seven little birds. Uh, yeah, that's tough. So we thought we would get some answers about this. Well, Shaver Sluice is the proprietor of the Preferred Perch on St. Mary's Road. Uh, her and I have been doing Talk to the Experts programs together for about five years from now. She regularly contributes on uh, 680 CGOB when it comes to these matters. By the way, home hardware and Loblaw stores have reportedly pulled these products from their shelves. Sherry, over the years, you and I have acknowledged that so often... We will do things for our feathered friends, for our furry friends, with the very best intentions, either for ourselves or even for them. And every once in a while, it can backfire. Yes, and this is just one of many things that I've heard over the years. I mean, this this really is um, a little more extreme, but... uh, you know, these obviously wasps are a huge concern in summer. You know, many people have allergies to them, so the stings can be, you know, very life-threatening to people. But these devices that we're talking about, these trap sticks, they are a visual lure to wasps. The, the pattern that's on them is an actual design that interests wasps to come to it, and, of course, they get stuck and they die. But really, the intention of them was meant to hang in, like, sunrooms or gazebos outside, not to just be hung openly in the backyard, because technically, you're actually attracting wasps by having that out there, because it is a visual lure. It's a visual attraction for wasps. So I'm not sure if this company, you know, was not very clear in the instructions that it's meant more for, you know, indoor type of things if if wasps happen to come into an area you're sitting in out you know in your sunroom or out in a gazebo but obviously uh this definitely did not go over well regarding the little chickadees that were stuck to this particular one and that probably was a young family the chickadee babies have now fledged from their nests and chickadees are very family oriented birds so that definitely appears to me that it was an entire family that was stuck to that so probably one got stuck and then it just carried on till the entire family was was stuck on there how long would it take uh, for one of those little birds to to die? Sadly, it probably would have taken quite a long time. It, it probably, you know, I would think it probably took probably close to a day anyway. That certainly wouldn't be an instant death, you so, know, because there's no injury. They're just stuck. So, yeah. you know, this is another, um, there's similar products out there. People are probably very uh, aware of the sticky mouse traps that you can buy. Mm-hmm. Well, over the years, I've had reports from customers who, you know, they were having mice coming in their sheds and things, so they'd put these sticky traps outside of their sheds or the garage, that type of thing. And when the mice get caught, they often are very vocal, and this attracts predators like owls and hawks that will come and see the mouse, and then they go to fly down to grab it, and they end up getting stuck. I've got many photos over the years of little screech owls and and hawks that, were also stuck to these because they went to catch the mouse and then everybody is stuck. So that's why it's kind of critical to follow the instructions and to use these where they're meant to be used. Exactly. 
And wasps, I mean, there are many other wasp traps out there. And again, a lot of them, I do have to say, are not very descriptive or giving good information. For example, there are some wasp traps out there that they suggest putting a sweet liquid in, like a sugar water or soda or or even beer is an attraction to wasps. But sweet things like that also attract beneficial insects, particularly bees. And we all know the plight of the bees these days. So wasp traps, if you have them or are looking at purchasing one, the best bait to get just wasps and hornets, not any beneficial insects, is actually to use deli meat, luncheon meat. It is an incredible attraction to wasps and will not uh, affect any of the good insects. But if I, let's say I put out a, a stack of pastrami in the corner of my yard, would yes. uh, would that not draw, because you mentioned the the the... the these traps, these sticky traps are like a visual lure to these wasps, so they attract more wasps to the yard. So would this not bring more wasps to the yard? Absolutely. I mean, that that is the concern of a wasp trap because they are designed to draw them in. So truthfully, the best way to deal with wasps, and there are many versions and qualities of these sold out there, but they're artificial wasp nests. So they're like a fabric material that uh, looks like a wasp's nest. But again, they don't always uh, have proper instructions on how to use them. But wasps are are very territorial and will not go near another wasp nest. So these fabric nests um, should be stuffed with something to make them look like they're quite full and and large. And they often come with a very long rope on them and people just hang them that way. And of course, it's blowing all over in the wind. And as we all know, when wasps build a nest, it's usually wrapped tightly around a branch and is not blowing and moving around. So you want to make sure you secure it very tightly wherever you hang it and that it looks nice and full, and those actually work very, very well sure. at just deterring the wasps rather than attracting. Sherry Versluce is the proprietor of the Preferred Perch on St. Mary's Road. She joins us now. We're getting a little bit of a weird echo there. Sherry, have you got your, have you got your radio on? No, you know what? That was just a beep on the phone. Somebody was beeping. The beep is over. Now they're gone. Okay, hopefully <laughs> yeah. our echo's gone too. Okay. Okay, so... Yeah, no, it's still there. Oh, I don't have a radio on, so I'm not sure why uh, that is. Sherry, how about this? I'm going to put you on hold, and sure. then... Uh, hold on, hold on. I, I think it looks like it's gone. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> Sorry, okay. Sherry, we were experiencing a, a weird li- weird echo on our end. Li- okay. Live radio, sometimes things go wonky. Absolutely. Yeah. So ho- home hardware and Loblaw stores have pulled this product from their shelves, Trapstick for Wasps. Is it potential? Is it possible that the retailers have overreacted based on the fact that, you know, these might actually work if they're used as designed and instructed? Well, exactly. I mean, I I haven't seen these products myself in full to see what the instructions are saying, but it should be in big, bold, very clear letters that these should not be hung outdoors. Uh, They are definitely meant as an indoor thing, like in mudrooms, gazebos, like we talked about. And if they're specifying that on there loud and clear, then by all means, it, it is a product that will work. But uh, to just be hanging loosely out in your yard, you actually are drawing more in than, you know, and that's obviously the opposite of what you're trying to do. So if they're, you know, packaged properly with the proper instructions made strictly clear of not hanging them freely in, out in the open in, in your yard, then by all means, they would be beneficial. I'm just thinking of other sort of homemade traps. I remember once uh, I tried the 
where you, you chop off the top of a, a two liter and then you just sort of invert it. You push the top of the, the bottle in so that the, and then fill it up with Dr. Pepper or root beer or whatever. And then the wasps, the idea is that they go in and then they, they get, they can't get out. They can't find their way out. They're just sort of stuck in the syrup. Are things like that also bad in terms of maybe attracting a bird or something like that? No, but again, if you're using sweet things, then you're definitely going to be attracting bees. So even with that um, description you're speaking of, that is a good idea for a trap. But again, you would want to use meat to make sure you're attracting just wasps and not bees. So there are, um, like what you just described is like a homemade version. There are actually decorative versions to hang out in the yard. We sell things like that. And same same with many garden centers, etc., but they are meant to put a bait inside them so that if there are wasps around, they are going to go in and not be able to get out. But you want to make sure you use something like a deli meat rather than anything sweet. So, Sherry, I have to ask you, because a lot of people will be, uh, well, whatever we can do to get rid of wasps, uh, what good do, do wasps do? Are there any benefit to us to having these around? Well, you know what? They actually do eat a lot of other nuisance insects in the garden. So that's one thing. They do eat a lot of aphids and caterpillars and that type of thing. So they they are carnivorous and do eat a lot of nuisance insects. But unfortunately, they've got a bit of an attitude and have kind of their their nastiness outweighs their benefits to most people because they are so aggressive. So they do have a role in nature. They do eat a lot of uh, bugs that are considered a problem to both trees and gardens, etc. Well, I, I, I chuckled there because I'm thinking there's a, there's a picture out there that I see from time to time. I just pulled it up. Bee or wasp? How to tell the difference? Bee, one, pollinates flowers. Two, makes honey. Three, improves the environment. Four, reluctant to sting. And then the wasp, one, just, uh, just an a-hole. That's right. That's exactly what they are because it doesn't take anything to uh, get stung. They're just very aggressive that way. So... So, yes, they've certainly earned their name, as you say. <laughs> One of our loyal listeners here, uh, Sherry, have to tell you, he's gotten his own invention here. What he did is he took off the flower petals of a hummingbird feeder, and apparently the wasps fly right in. I'm, I'm doing a quick count here. There must be 200 of them in this feeder. I don't see any bees, but he just said, it looks as though I'm going to be transitioning to a meat-based attractant. It looks as though he's been using a sugar water or something similar. Don't see any bees here in the wasp graveyard inside this hummingbird feeder, uh, but uh, that's obviously a possibility. It is, and you know what? We have so many different species of bees here, so you know, I know a lot of people when they think of bee right away, they think of a big fat bumblebee, which is clearly black and yellow. We do have a lot of other different bees that if you're really not familiar with them, you may even think that they are a type of wasp. So. Mm. So, yes, absolutely what he's doing is the idea of, of a wasp trap, um, but definitely him switching to meat is a great idea. And I'm just looking at the this box, the trap stick for wasps. This is the, the this part of the story here. And right on the package, there is a picture of it hanging outside. It's it's hanging sort of from the underneath your ease trough. Uh, right, I guess it's meant to be placed right beside a wasp nest, so you can just catch them as they're coming and going. See, but even that is a problem because there are actually some birds that will eat wasps. And, uh, you know, again, that's that's definitely going to be attracting more than just wasps if, you, if you're hanging it like that. So I, I can't stress enough with sticky things. There's even ones that are for, for flies that you can hang out. But really, 
hanging sticky things out in the open like that, obviously it does leave it open for many other things to get stuck than what you're intending for. Sherry, thanks for this. You're an outstanding resource, such a good friend to the uh, wildlife population and to us here at 680 CGOB. Always appreciate your insight. You're always filling us with information that go, I hadn't thought about that. I will be altering my own activity and how I approach things. So we appreciate that on that front. Thank you so much as well, everybody. Have a great day. Sherry Versluce, the preferred perch. That's at 1604 St. Mary's Road. Pop by and say hi to Sherry. Let her know that you heard her here on CJOB. She'd love to uh, meet you. She's got a great Facebook community as well. Always shocked to learn that the second largest hobby in Canada after gardening is bird watching. Really? Yes. I wonder where what a good place to go would be for bird watching? Would it be just something simple like Assiniboine Park or do you have to go to a, are there specific spots out there in the Southern Manitoba wilderness? That Lots are- of people have great stuff in their backyard. Uh, Fort White Alive is amazing. Okamak Marsh, Marsh can be very good as well. Uh, yeah, it's kind of a, kind of a neat hobby for sure. It is 148 on 680 CJOB. I, I don't know, I guess, do we ask the question what, uh, what sort of homemade traps have you tried for wasps? Yeah, good, bad, or otherwise. Uh, maybe you've designed something, done something with all the best intentions, and it's backfired, and maybe you'd like to share with us now that disaster uh, so that others don't replicate it. 204-780-6868. Or if you're like Jason, maybe you've got a really good idea, just needs to be modified slightly in terms of its bait conversation with you and Mackling and McGarry when we come back. As you've probably heard by now, if you're a fan of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, Bob Irving, for the first time in 17 years, will not call the broadcast of a bomber game here on 680 CJOB. Kelly Moore will take over for Bob Irving, and Bob is scheduled to have a heart-related medical procedure on Wednesday. We send him our very best. We know he's in great hands over at St. Boniface, and uh, just wanted to let you know that uh, things are uh, in good stead with our good friend Bob, and uh, he intends to be back in the saddle for the next Blue Bomber home game on July 27th against the Montreal Alouettes, and I know he appreciates you keeping him in his thoughts. Speaking of... uh Probably help if I turn my microphone on. This happens every time I go away and come back for a few days. I just I forget. It's like uh, you just get rusty. Um, you have a, not only you're doing the halftime show, which is awesome, but uh, you have a podcast too now. That's right. It's the Blue Bomber podcast with Doug Brown. It was uploaded, oh, just over an hour ago. We're already getting tremendous response. So thank you for everyone that's gone to CGOB and downloaded the Blue Bomber podcast with Doug Brown. You have your opportunity to win Blue Bomber tickets. We have a secret word embedded within the podcast. It's just over 20 minutes this week. If you find that secret word, you can text it to 780-6868 and be entered to win uh, two tickets to the next Blue Bomber home game. And yeah, thanks, Brett. Uh, Doug and I hammered that out yesterday, and we hope that you will enjoy it. Look forward to your feedback and having a lot of fun with that throughout the rest of the season. Oh, yeah. I'm just looking. I do see that you have had a number of downloads already. That's uh, now I just got to check to see how many more downloads than the couch potatoes. <laughs> we are in competition now, Mr. McGarry. <laughs> yeah. Where do people go to download these podcasts? I guess you can go to iTunes, Google Play, uh, our website. 
You, you're like you're the guru on this stuff. Yeah, iTunes, Google Play, you can get those. You can just go to cjob.com and find it there. Uh, but uh, yeah, if you the name of the podcast once again for your show is simply the Blue Bomber Podcast with Doug Brown. And then if you subscribe, when we upload the podcast, it'll typically be every Tuesday. It'll automatically show up in your podcast, and then you can listen to it. You don't have to search for it. It'll just magically arrive like a package from Amazon. It'll be right there in your virtual mailbox, and you can take us wherever you go. Yeah, I subscribe to a lot of channels on YouTube, but that's always nice. I can just click on subscriptions and all the stuff that I like to follow is just right there. Don't have to go looking for it. Now, I I know we're maybe breaking the cardinal sin here, okay? but I'm going to uh, combine two sins here. I'm going to tell you about a podcast, the Malcolm Gladwell podcast, Revisionist History. Oh, yes. He has a great one that just came out about golf and his hook within the podcast in the first 90 seconds is I hate golf and I hope by the time you finish listening to this podcast you will hate it too. <laughs> it's called A Good Walk Spoiled. It's about how the largest and most prestigious golf courses in Los Angeles avoid paying property tax. Really? It's fascinating. Wow. Check it out. GMAC at CJOB.com and I'll send you the link. Shh, don't tell my boss. It is coming up to 2 o'clock on 680 CJOB, which means it's time for Global News. It is Brett McGarry with Greg Mackling this afternoon on 680 CJOB. Thank you so much for joining us and wanted to say thank you as well just uh, to the listeners who texted to, to offer their support. Uh, you may, If you were listening at all yesterday, uh, you may have realized that I was absent. I was absent because I was dealing with a family situation where my sister's cat which was formerly my cat, had to had to go down for the count. So a lot of uh, people just texting their support, and I want to th- say thank you to all of you for that, and thanks once again to Greg for taking care of the show while I was dealing with that. You know, you um, must have thanked me a half a dozen times. and It's not only what uh, co-workers do, but that's what friends do for one another as they pick up the slack in times of need and... You know, I, uh, man, I, it's a lousy thing to go through. And I was only imagining your emotional state yesterday. I did not experience it. Uh, I'm sorry you went through it, but I was glad to be here and uh, be in a position to, to pick up the slack because you do so much to get ready for the show and post-production and everything. So uh, you're a good partner and because things are organized the way they are, it makes it somewhat easier to just kind of uh, pick up the slack when when either of us have other obligations and things that come up. So uh, that's just the way it goes, brother. All right. So we have, we want to switch gears here now. You mentioned uh, the term emotional state. I can only imagine the emotional state of the, the two men that are the subject of this article that we are about to discuss. The headline is, After a harrowing flight from U.S., refugees find asylum in Canada. This is a headline, an article from the New York Times, written by Catherine Porter, who joins us now live on 680 CJOB. Catherine, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Catherine, what was your visit like to Winnipeg, and why did the New York Times decide to send you on your way to our lovely city? Well, I actually came to Winnipeg to to cover the story about the people who are crossing the border near Emerson back in February. And I was in Winnipeg with a colleague um, very briefly then for two days, two and a half days, I guess. 
we met many people who had made this journey across um, the snow-swept fields. Um, it was kind of at the height, and people down at Emerson were, were starting to get quite concerned about it. And the main story that had triggered so much media attention had been these two gentlemen from Ghana who had crossed over um, on uh, the beginning of the December 23rd, and they were found on the side of the road just north of Emerson on the 24th, so frostbitten that after about a month they lost all but one thumb in terms of their fingers. And from to frostbite, um, and so I, like many other journalists at the time, went to interview them too. And while I just referenced them in the first story I did, I wanted to come back and see how they were doing. Once I heard that they had both been accepted at the refugee hearings at, um, here uh, there in Winnipeg, so that's why I came back to to see you know how they were doing and. Um, to me, uh, they seem to be both poster children for, you know, why people would not make this trek because, you know, it is quite dangerous in a way that we've never thought of migrants or, or refugees fleeing into Canada that way, the way that you often think, you know, um, people uh, in, in rickety boats in the Mediterranean. Um, but, you know, the flip side is that they were both accepted. So uh, their stories also seem to indicate that this would be a good thing to do. Razak Ayel and Sadu Mohammed. I hope I'm doing their names justice there, Catherine. Yes, I do, yeah. They are from uh, originally from Ghana, and their trip to Canada, never mind the last you know, 30 miles or so in the dead of winter crossing the border at Emerson. I mean, their entire journey here uh, coming from Brazil is absolutely uh, harrowing. Yeah, I was amazed by that, too. I had never heard that story before I came in February, but every single person I met on that trip had the same kind of story. They either flew from um, Africa, except for a few, but most of them, they flew from Africa to either Ecuador or Brazil, and then they took this epic journey by bus, foot, boat, crossing at points. So they all said they passed through Panama, walking through the jungle, um, and being incarcerated in the release, and incarcerated release, and making their way over months to the American border. And there, uh, all of them had the same story, that they were detained, um, up to two years in detention, waiting for um, hearings. Um, most of them told me that they had not received legal aid or meaningful legal aid, or uh, many of them said they also, including these two gentlemen um, from Ghana, Rezek and um, uh, Saidu, um, they couldn't uh, access long-distance phone calls to assemble their cases, um, like call back to Ghana to, to start assembling um, their cases, and most of them, um, all of them, in fact, told me that they failed their hearings there, and then they were at least on bonds and were kind of worried with the rise of um, President Trump that they would be deported, and that's why they made their way to the border to come across. But there were, um, and growing, and I've heard also, you know, from my last trip to your city, that um, there is this growing trend of uh, mostly Eritreans that fly with visas into the United States and they cross directly across the border. So the U.S. is just a transit point to claim refugee status or apply for refugee status here in Canada. So these these people who are going to great lengths to get 
into Canada. They're afraid that they're going to be singled out, that they're going to be targeted by the Trump administration. Is any of that actually happening? Well, yeah, you, you see that um, despite the Muslim ban, there is an increased enforcement by ICE in the United States. Um, and in fact, both these men from Ghana, when I was there um, in Winnipeg, were showing me um, they were showing me videos taken of Ghanaians in New York um, uh, being shipped off uh, for flight because they're all congregated together for one flight back to Ghana. So there have been orders um, by President Trump to increase, um, you know, uh, the, the actions of immigration officers. So uh, I think that they're right to be worried at, um, about deportation. Um, they had failed their hearings. You know, the system is that in the United States that they would be deported. That's what would be expected. But for a long time, they had been sort of living and, you know, waiting for deportation and working either illegally or with work permits. Rajak had a work permit and Saidu was unable to get them. So he was just sort of hanging around waiting. So a lot of people ask that question, why are they fleeing the U.S.? And and you've answered that question in, in vivid color. Whether it's a reality or perception, uh, we all know that perception becomes reality very quickly, especially if you believe there's a reason that you could get caught up in, in what's happening. What is the status of the safe third country agreement, and why is it so contentious, Catherine? the safe third country agreement was signed between Canada and the United States, and it says that if you land, if you arrive to a land border only um, and want to claim refugee status, you you have to claim it at the first country you get into. So it has to be either in Canada or the United States. You can't go to the border between them after getting to the United States. You couldn't come to the Canadian border and then file uh, or ask for refugee status. You get turned back. They say that since both countries are safe for refugees, that you have to, you can't asylum shop, is, is sort of the theory behind it. You have to apply in the first place that you land. Um, now, the interesting thing about this is that it applies, like I said, only at the that land border crossing. So if you went to the United States and you make your way across the border at a place that's not an official border crossing and then you apply for asylum, you, you can do that under this agreement. Um, so many uh, refugee advocates have argued for many, many years, long before President Trump came to power, two things. One is that they say that the United States is not a safe country for refugees, and they cite things like the ones that both Saidu and Rizek said, that they detain people uh, for a long period of time, sometimes in open um, prison po- populations, and they often aren't granted access to legal aid. Um, so they have many different reasons, but those are two. Um, so they, they claim that the United States is not safe, so that the premise of this agreement is wrong, but also that it perversely provides incentive for people to cross the border. Uh, they would say um, in an in irregular mean. Other people would say it's illegally, mm-hmm. um, but to, to cross across a field rather than presenting themselves at a border guard, uh, to a border card, that, that they are basically forcing people one refugee advocate said, to, you know, risk losing their fingers and toes in the dead of winter in order to come and get a fair shake at a refugee claim uh, here, and here in Canada. Well, the, so this story of these two men is very interesting because they both lost their refugee hearings in the United States, and they both won their refugee hearings in Canada. So it makes you think that this really does support the argument of 
refugee advocate, except, you know, in the case of Saidu, who uh, was outed as a, as a gay soccer player, and he comes from Ghana, where being having gay sex is illegal and you can be incarcerated, it, also, you know, the victim of mob violence. Um, he, he, according to his lawyer and, and international law, would immediately qualify as a convention refugee. His friend, Ryzak, is a more nuanced story. He fled uh, Ghana because of a family spat over land. Uh, and he says his family was out to kill him, that they did attempt to really harm him. He landed in hospital. The police were corrupt and did not protect him, refused to protect him, and that's what sparked his journey. His case would have been harder to win, according to even his own lawyer here in Canada, as a refugee. But because Ghanaian media back in Ghana uh, falsely referred to both of them as gay, he then was considered, uh, they call it a surplus refugee. So his case became, uh, you know, in the process of of getting to Canada, he his case made him a refugee because if he did go back to Ghana now, people would assume he was gay despite the fact he is married and he could be imprisoned and also the face the brunt of vigilante justice there. So it's not completely, their cases are not completely black and white. Catherine, uh, we're going to end it on this one. What has been the reaction to articles like this one and the others you've done in the past? Because this is an issue that's much more visible here in Winnipeg, in Quebec versus Toronto or New York. Uh, what is the feedback that you're getting from your readers? I got mostly positive feedback on this story, um, but stories about, about in, in Canada too, because I think Canada right now, Canadians are quite proud of our traditions of accepting refugees at this point in the world, which is turning its back largely on, on refugees. But, you know, some of the reaction in the States is the opposite. Um, so it, it, it's, it's interesting that we're in a time of, uh, you know, a time right now where refugees are contentious and just the idea of taking in refugees or people call them migrants instead of refugees is, has become politically contentious. Actually, one final question as well. Uh, you had mentioned that uh, both of these gentlemen and others fled to Brazil, to South America. Just wondering if, if there is a reason for that. Why are they starting their journeys across the, the ocean in South America and making their way all the way up here? Well, these two guys had, you know, um, Razak was a successful businessman, so he was able to get a ticket to, to Brazil himself, and Saidi was there because he was trying out for a Brazilian soccer team. Most of them said Ecuador, because Ecuador is a place that you didn't need a visa to get to from Ghana um, directly, so they had looser, um, you know, laws around uh, visas. So for them, they were able to land there. And it seems that a, a real underground railroad has begun. And that's the way that, that um, people from both Ghana and Somalia know. Um, they, they know that from there they can start making their trick. Harrowing. To, uh, to the United States. <laughs> Absolutely unimaginable journey. Uh, Catherine, yeah. thanks for shedding some light on this story that uh, many of us in Winnipeg are familiar with. Uh, you brought some more intimate details to light in your article. We appreciate it very much and your time today. All right, thank you for having me and have a great day. You too, Catherine Porter. She's with the New York Times. She joined us from Toronto.
discussing her article, which is titled, After a Harrowing Flight from U.S., Refugees Find Asylum in Canada. And we've gotten a number of text messages already on this discussion. Feel free to share more at 204-780-6868, or if you even want to give us a call at 204-780-6868. Your forecast is up next. Fred McGarry with Greg Mackling. We just had a conversation with Catherine Porter, who is a reporter with the New York Times, who has now been to Winnipeg twice. She came here back in February to report on the story of all of these people who were fleeing to Canada. They were fleeing the United States because they feared Donald Trump and his administration. And she heard the story of these two men from Ghana who made their way up to Canada, and they both uh, had they all of their fingers amputated and... One the, the one man, one of the two, has one thumb left. So between the two of them, they have one thumb. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, one of them actually, that one, or the, the one with no digits left, has actually been offered by our medical system to have some of his toes transplanted to his hands, which would be, that's a lot of money. And he says, you know what, uh, I'm going to thank you, but no thanks, because he has visions of continuing to play professional soccer so he doesn't want to to risk that so uh that's interesting that he declined that offer but we are getting a lot of text messages and uh some of them this is typically the kind of response that comes in and we wanted to share it because there are people who think that this is a good thing and there are people who think this is a bad thing so some of the texts that came in, for example, here, where was the first one that I saw? Something about fingerless freeloaders, I think. Uh, ah, aren't these fingerless freeloaders both unemployed and leeching off the system after the surgeries and benefits? How much have these clowns cost us? That's one text message that came in. Yeah, and from the same texter, guys, remember, one of them said he was gay, then changed his tune to buy. The other guy's claim was a family dispute. Neither should have been approved. Now, the uh, we'll just also quickly point out as well that as Catherine was saying, the, the media back in Ghana mm-hmm. uh, reported that both of them are gay. So regardless of what their sexual orientations are, it's out there in Ghana that they are both gay. So they would face uh, prosecution. Persecution upon their return if they were shipped back to Ghana. Correct. Uh, Here's another one. Oh, that's the same. No, that's the same one here. A lot of them are from the same texture. Um, And Jeff also says, yes, Greg, harrowing, Greg, for the chance of winning the effing lottery in Canada to come to Canada because the coming to Canada is like winning the lottery for I guess in in the minds of uh, of Jeff here. So we, we hey listen, we thank you for the feedback. We understand it is a contentious issue, and this is why we have these discussions, why we bring these stories to light. Because sometimes you're going to agree, sometimes you're not going to agree, but we can always have a chat about it on 680 CJOB. And up next, we're going to switch gears and talk to a man who I don't know when he, I want to know how much sleep he gets because when I read <laughs> what he does, all, all the stuff he does, uh, I think he's actually a cyborg who was sent here from the future and uh, is likely going to terminate us all. We'll find out after 2.30 on 680 CJOB. Greg Mackling, Brett McGarry with you on this Tuesday afternoon. And... We love welcoming into the studio people who are proud of Winnipeg, Winnipeg Boosters. And it's a lot of walk, 
versus a lot of talk. This guy walks the walk, Brett McGarry. Yeah, and uh, he is the, the the Terminator I was telling you about just before Global News at 2.30. The headline is, Tireless Volunteer Lends His Voice to Games. Sachit Mera is our guest. He is a Canada Summer Games ambassador and a champion of Winnipeg. And I'll just read you some of this uh, article here. Uh, what's this, from the Free Press? Free Press. Free Press Fair article. Enough. Sachit Mera, a champion of Winnipeg who works to bake it, make it a better place by serving on nine different boards. Boards, nine different boards. I'll stop it right there. <laughs> How do you have time to do all of that? Gentlemen, first of all, what an absolute pleasure to be here. Quel plaisir d'être ici aujourd'hui. And you got my name right. That's that's fantastic. <laughs> thank, thank you very much. Uh, we were well coached. Yeah, no, it, it, it's terrific. You know what? What a phenomenal city uh, right off the bat. And what a phenomenal province that we're in right now. The things that are happening in Winnipeg, it's exciting. Uh, the electricity downtown uh, and around the city as we start to prepare for the games is unbelievable. In fact, I was just at a volunteer uh, meeting yesterday and, you know, we were getting uh, ready for our, our training, if you will. And it was uh, it was incredible to, to just feel the energy inside the room. I mean, you know, in about a week and a half, uh, starting on the 26th and 7th and 8th, and especially for the opening ceremonies there, we're going to have around 20,000 visitors from all over. We're going to have athletes. We're going to have their families. Uh, we're going to have media. And we're importantly, we're going to have the eyes of the nation on Winnipeg. And what a special year that this is as well, right? I mean, we all know it's Canada's 150th, of course. And some people might not know that this is for the games. It's also its 50th. Uh, anniversary for the game. So we've got these two very special dates in what I think is a very special city, my home city, and and it's happening here. So it's exciting. Well, I have two points of reference for comparison. I lived in Brandon in 1979 when they hosted Canada Winter Games. That's right. A two-week celebration. And we had an extra long Easter break at that time because all the schools were used as dormitories in the winter. And so we had we got two weeks instead of one, so that was pretty cool. But the eyes of the nation were on Brandon, and it was one of those times when not only was it a celebration of Canada and sport and coming together, but it was an opportunity for Brandon to show the rest of Canada what our community was all about. And then, of course, 1999, Pan American Games. Uh, my dad was a volunteer in 67. They happened before I was born, but had always heard about this incredible legacy of the games. And I always sensed in the build-up to the games that we didn't really understand what we were on the precipice of. And I'm getting the sense that we're understanding a little bit better with Canada Summer Games, but I am also getting a little bit of the same feeling that this big event is coming, we don't really know what to expect, but from my point of view, three weeks from now, when it's all said and done, we're going to go, wow, that was an incredible two weeks. I wish I would have known what was coming. So prepare us a little bit for what is coming down the pike and how we can get involved as opposed to lamenting the fact we weren't involved enough three or four weeks from now. I know that was a really long uh, soapbox there, and I, I apologize for that, Satch, but uh, no, I, I think we're on the same wavelength here. We, you know, we absolutely are, and you know, your, your question is multifaceted, and so I'm going to try to tackle it as best I can. Uh, yes, it's absolutely exciting. There's a whirlwind of things happening. Uh, of course, the opening ceremonies are on the 28th, and I've mentioned that we're going to have all these visitors over here. Uh, we've got events happening across the province, uh, events happening in Gimli as well. People can absolutely come down and visit them. 
tourism. We've got a festival stage happening at the Forks Market for uh, 11 days. You're going to have performers there as well. And basically, it's a venue for people to kind of congregate after a busy day at the games and to swap some stories, share, try some food out, and maybe enjoy some beverages. So, I mean, it's, it's going to be incredible. Uh, anybody that, uh, you know, uh, uh, tried out the uh, Grey Cup uh, knows how electrifying a city can become once you get all these people together in a space and, you know, start going around. Um, I like to think that this is where, you know, the athletes of tomorrow come and mm. show their stuff. And you're going to see that, right? You're going to see all the Cindy Classens of tomorrow, you know, present them, present their best at the games. And really, we do treat this as, you know, an Olympic level qualifying games. That's exactly what this is. So these guys are here. They're going to be doing their absolute best to make sure that they're, they're ready to compete at that next level. And it's going to be happening here. You know, I, I like to think... You know, when you look around uh, Winnipeg and you see all these um, projects that are happening around the city and you look at what the games has contributed to that as well. I mean, it's fantastic. Uh, you know, we stepped out there and we asked for volunteers, uh, you know, about a year and a year and a half ago. We started with a volunteer drive and we needed 7000 volunteers, gentlemen. And, uh, you know, Winnipeggers and Manitobans stepped up and it was incredible for them. Why? Because at a community level, you know, we're building this legacy right into people. They're learning skills. And if they've got certain skills, they're sharing those skills. And you mentioned the Pan Am Games and same thing. We've got people from the Pan Am Games that have come up and said, oh, yeah, I know all about transportation or, oh, yeah, I know all about, uh, you know, accreditation process or whatnot. And then they're transferring those skills around. That's great because that stays in the community. It builds the community and we've got something moving forward. But then there's this legacy bit of it as well, you know, in the Qualico Sports for Life Center on Pacific. And I don't know if you had a chance to visit this or you're not. It is a phenomenal sports facility that's been built and after the games it's ours to keep you know the city and the province enjoy this and it's fantastic and you know we really couldn't have done it without the city of winnipeg the province of manitoba and of course the uh the you know the great country of canada i mean everybody's really stepped up and of course as have our partners on the ground all the big uh, business partners that have come along and of course i love to thank each and every volunteer. I mean, the people that are around the table making this happen on a daily basis, you can't quantify uh, in, into words uh, or numbers the amount of work that they've done to really make this. So it's it's fantastic. Sachit Mira is our guest. He is a Canada Summer Games ambassador, serving as volunteer spokesman for the Canada Summer Games, happening in Winnipeg between July 28th and August 13th. And there is a bit of an overlap with this massive event that's happening in Winnipeg with another annual massive event, which is Folklorama, which begins August 6th. So I'm just curious. I mean, I have no idea about logistics for the Canada Summer Games and uh, if there's any any sort of conflict, but is it a good thing or a bad thing that they're happening kind of at the same time? I think having a busy city, I think having multiple things happening around your city and your province are a fantastic thing. I think, you know, th there's no mistake, gentlemen, that in the last, you know, year, two years, uh, when you consider the fact that we have been featured in Vogue en route, National Geographic. This is the place. The secret's out. You know, uh, Winnipeggers that have been keeping the secret or the, the Manitobans that have been keeping the secret about Winnipeg for the last uh, 10 and 15 years, I'm sorry, but the cat's out of the bag. <laughs> the reality is this is a beautiful city with uh, tremendous opportunities and you are going to be getting more events. You're going to be getting uh, more conventions. You're going to be getting more things 
just like this. And I think we need to be ready for it. Uh, I know that the games have made uh, some incredible logistical uh, uh, plans, and those are in place right now. I think Folkrama is a great and well-organized event, and so it's going to be a good time for everybody. You can enjoy you know, a pavilion one night and enjoy games the next night. Get your tickets at Ticketmaster.ca, by the way, for the games. Uh, you know, I just threw that in real quick. Uh, it'll, it'll be a fantastic time. Well, I think even the return of the National Hockey League snuck up on Winnipeg. Sure did, yeah. There was a gigantic faction of the population that believed that it was never going to happen. And then it almost seemed for a vast majority of people that it happened almost overnight. But of course, it was a six, seven, eight year, nine year process that started way before we even imagined that it was happening. And once again, I'll tie it back to this event coming up. If you don't get involved, you're going to be sorry. There's such an opportunity right now, and I've I've done a couple of you know volunteer classes, if you will, and you know go around and talk to people that uh, you know want to get involved in the games, and and I've said to them, this is an opportunity to build a resume. It's an opportunity to build a skill set um, and take that forward. And you look at what Winnipeg is having to offer right now in terms of, of course, not only the NHL, but you look at what's happening around our downtown. I think last time I checked, we've got. Five cranes up downtown right now. Like it's a it's a fantastic place, uh, and, and the more that continues to happen, I think you're going to see more and more events keep coming. Got to give a plug, by the way. Uh, your family owns East India Company Restaurant. Uh, I tell you what, the, I've been there a couple of times, and I have a you have to roll me out uh, <laughs> like a barrel because yep. I just keep going back for five, six, seven plates of the butter chicken. It is uh, one of my favorite places. I can only go there. Once in a while, because I, uh, my my body just can't handle the punishment I provided. So we've got deep roots in Winnipeg uh, and, and the province. My grandmother and my dad started um, in 1969 on the second floor of a B-run uh, movie house on Sherbrooke, and that's where they would serve, uh, you know, their first East Indian meals. And if they got two customers on a Saturday night, it was a it was a big deal. And the reason they did that then was, you know, not to make money, but just to feel a sense of community by serving the food. Um, you know, of course, uh, you know, they opened up a smaller restaurant on uh, McDermott on the ground. That was there for 21 years to about 92, 93. We opened up our downtown location, 93. The community has been a phenomenal supporter of ours. Uh, Winnipeggers have rallied around the restaurant, the family. We have opened up a couple more locations out in Ottawa as well, and we're doing uh, quite well there. It's, uh, you know, it's been phenomenal. And it's part of the reason you know, that, you know, you, you recognize the fact that you're supported by this community, that you want to turn around. Any sane human being would want to turn around and say, I want to give back. And that's been a huge part of it. And, you know, when I work in different community events, you know, whether it's a Canada Summer Games or whether it's a different boards I sit on, uh, Winnipeg is always the top of my list and, you know, really touching back to the different communities that have been so supportive of us. And uh, it feels fantastic. There's a huge legacy here. We're three generations in the restaurant business. Uh, I want to say we're one of, if not the highest rated, longest standing family restaurant in Manitoba. Wow. That's that's a neat piece of trivia and well-deserved as well. It really is an establishment, uh, an excellent establishment. Uh, for those who are unfamiliar with the location, by the way. We're on 349 York Avenue, uh, right next door to the convention center in beautiful downtown Winnipeg, parking right across the street. Continue our conversation in a moment. We're talking about Canada Summer Games. We're talking about downtown and Winnipeg with... Our new friend Sachit Mera, who is an ambassador for the Canada Summer Games, also serving as volunteer spokesman for the Games, happening July 28th to August 13th. Your forecast is coming up next. 
We're talking about Winnipeg. We're talking about Canada summer games and and Sachit Mara is here. He's a champion of our city. He's a volunteer, basically spokesperson for the games. And and Sach, we were talking off the air about the uh, legacy that your family has created within our community and the legacy that these games are going to help provide. When I remember back to the 1999 Pan Am Games, it was sunny the entire two weeks. I'm not trying to jinx anything here and maybe don't want to talk about it. I'm crossing my we fingers. We did not get any rain until about halfway through the first Guess Who song during the closing ceremonies. It was such a spectacle. And I don't mean to harp on this whole idea of I'm not reeling what we're uh, understanding what we're on the precipice of here. But give us a, an understanding one more time for those just tuning in how many people are coming to the city over the next three weeks. Absolutely. Well, first of all, the, the tagline for the games is Canada's hottest uh, games in a century, right? And so we're, we're looking for some warm, we're looking for some warm weather, and I, I think it's going to hold us to that, and that'll be good. Uh, you know, the numbers of people coming to Winnipeg and Manitoba for the games are tremendous. Uh, we're looking at 20,000 plus visitors, and I think that's a conservative number. Uh, you're going to be looking at athletes. You're going to be looking at coaching staff. For the athletes, you're going to be looking at media, um, you know, and all those fans that are coming down with them as well. Um, and then you're going to be looking at, you know, component of it that's, you know, looking at Winnipeg and seeing what uh, Winnipeg has to offer as well. And and I think that's important. And you want to leave each one of those people from the athletes that are coming here that are qualifying for different events and giving their absolute best, the, you know, uh, a, a real Olympic experience. You want them to have that. Um, you want the people that are um, visiting Winnipeg uh, to feel like this is an absolutely tremendous experience, you know, right from when they get off the uh, airport uh, turnbull, if you will, and into their first, uh, you know, their, their first introduction to a, a Winnipeg volunteer, to the transportation services, to the hotel services, to uh, restaurants that are out there, um, and to the venue. You want them to have an absolutely great point of contact at every contact point. So when they leave and they go, you know, and they go back to wherever, whether it's Calgary, Toronto, Montreal, wherever, and they go, hey, I just had a great time in right. Winnipeg, and I'm going to take my family there for a vacation next year. We talk about all of us being ambassadors, right? So when we come in contact with these athletes and their families, you know, we have a little bit of a job to do. And I just want to, you know, I'm hearkening back to when FIFA was here. Was it last summer or was it two years yeah, ago Yeah, it was two years ago, just prior to um, uh, the Great Cup, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, that's exactly right. And are all the museums, all the tourist destinations are they on board do they are they prepared because there were a couple of instances where we had thousands of tourists in winnipeg for one of the american soccer games and just as an example we covered it here at 680 cjob the canadian museum for human rights was closed on a monday their normal closed day are all of these activities and attractions understanding what's coming. I can tell you right now that uh, the staff at the Canada Summer Games has done a phenomenal job, uh, as has uh, excellent uh, Winnipeg organizations like Tourism Winnipeg, uh, the Winnipeg Downtown Biz, um, and others uh, to connect all of those 
things that you've mentioned, uh, you know, uh, tourism spots, uh, restaurants, hotel front of line staff uh, with the knowledge and information they need to provide an excellent experience to people that are coming, right? It's about being able to answer the simple questions. It's about being able to have that door opened. And if you can do that and you've got those resources out there, then you're going to provide a good experience. And uh, I know that they've been working. Uh, I know that, uh, you know, the biz, for example, has its clean teams out and ready to go and make sure that the streets are pristine. And, uh, you know, that's an important factor. Uh, you want to make sure that the hotel's uh, front of the line staff know exactly what's going on or where events are being held. And you want to make sure that the Forks is ready to accommodate, uh, you know, all these food trucks and these people landing down there. Uh, and it's it's in place and it's going to be a good time. We only have about 90 seconds left here. And I just, I wanted to, to I, I sort of prefaced it at the beginning by saying you're on nine different boards. Yeah. How do you find time to do all of that when you're still involved, actively involved in a business, a successful business? So first of all, I have a very understanding uh, wife and family. Uh, Caroline is is excellent. We've been married. We just had our 19th uh, anniversary. Yeah. Uh, she's a, a wonderful lady. Hi, Caroline. Um, you know, I love the city. You have to have a drive for that. Um, you have to be passionate about the things that you're doing and know that they're making an, a, an effect and a change and a positive impact. Um, and then there's the pragmatic of it. I work seven days a week. Um, usually, you know, 12, 14, 15 hour days are about my norm. Uh, and if I'm not uh, out and about doing something, then I'm usually on an email banging out. That's just the reality of kind of what it is. Uh, but I enjoy that. So it's not a negative. Um, I absolutely, absolutely love that. And uh, we'll keep doing it and, and keep contributing back to the city because I uh, just have such a passion for it. Sachit Mara, you are an absolute treasure. You are a credit to our community, a credit to your family, and uh, the legacy of your family uh, is one that I know you honor. And uh, thanks for everything you do in honor of Winnipeg and to make us feel better about ourselves and for others across the country to understand how awesome we are here in Winnipeg. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Sachit Mara is the Canada Summer Games Ambassador. He is Volunteer Spokesman. And once again, what's the website, Sachit, for the Canada Games? If they're looking to buy tickets, you can go to ticketmaster.ca. If you're looking for information, events, and venues, you can find the information at canadagames.ca slash 2017. Coming up to Global News at 3 o'clock on 680 CJOB. 308, Tuesday afternoon. I'm Greg. He's Brett through until 4 o'clock. Then it's Richard Cloutier and Brittany Greenslade in for a vacationing Julie Buckingham. That's right. How often is it that we talk about birds? Like once every like three, four weeks? Yeah, and now we've got it twice in one day. <laughs> what are the chances of that? Here's the headline from the University of Manitoba. Birds in Alberta oil fields forced to raise imposters at alarming rate. Well, if that headline doesn't catch your attention and make you want to read more, I'm not sure one will. So, uh, Brett, maybe you can give us a little bit of the outline of the story before we bring Nicola Coper. She is a professor of Natural Resources uh, Institute, University of Manitoba. It reads, Alberta's oil and gas infrastructure is providing a great living to the brown-headed cowbird, a bird species that tricks other songbirds into raising its young. This is according to a new University of Manitoba study. So rather than go through the rest, we'll get our guest to explain what this is all about. So, Nicola, thank you so much for joining us. Are we pronouncing that correct, by the way? It's Nicola? Yep, that's just fine. Thanks for having me. All right. So I guess before we proceed, why don't we first ask, what is a brown-headed cowbird, for those who have never heard or perhaps seen one? So we've got, we do have Cowbirds in Winnipeg as well, actually. Uh, you might have 
seen them and maybe not knowing what they were, um, sitting on telephone lines or something like that, um, usually, usually a few of them hanging out together. And uh, the males are um, black with a really uh, rich brown head to them. So sometimes it's a light shining on it. You can see the brown uh, in there as well. And so that's one of the species we were looking at when we were in Alberta, but we do have them here in Winnipeg as well. And so it's kind of an interesting species because they can't build their own nest. They don't build their own nest and they're not able to. And so the only way that they can reproduce is by laying their eggs in the nest of other species and then leaving the egg to be raised by the other species for them. So are there other species of bird that, that do this form of trickery? It's, it, it sounds like a kind of a lazy way to be a parent. Uh, yeah, that's right. There are quite a few species do. Um, some species will sometimes do that and will sometimes build their own nest. Um, other species can only reproduce if they lay their eggs in nests that other species build, and that's the case with the brown-headed cowbird. So this bird here is described as a parasitic bird. I've never, I don't know that I've ever heard of a bird being described as a parasite. What, why is this particular bird inclined to this kind of way of life? So actually there's a few different kinds of parasites. The brown-haired cowbird is uh, what we call a brood parasite, which specifically means that it lays its eggs in other species' nests. And of course it's, it takes a lot less energy to just lay an egg than to actually lay an egg and then try and raise the baby up completely uh, by yourself. So you can imagine that if you went out of the house and you came back and all of a sudden there was an extra kid in your in your <laughs> house that you had to put all the work into raising, it might be something that, that used an awful lot of extra energy on your part and you might be, find it really confusing, but you got to get through the day and like make sure all the kids have food so you just go about and like make sure that, that, that you can feed the baby at the same time. And so that's really what they're doing. They, they literally sneak into a nest when the other uh, the host species is not looking and lay their eggs and just hope that it doesn't get noticed or um, kicked out of the nest by the host species. Um, and so uh, it's an awful lot of work for the other species to try and raise the babies. But as a cowbird, that means that you can go off and just have another nest somewhere else. And you can quite literally put uh, your eggs in more than one basket. So you don't have to worry about all of your babies getting depredated or eaten by a predator or something like that. Just they're sort of spread out in a bunch of different nests as well. So there's lots of advantages to the cowbird of uh, laying their eggs in other birds' nests. So, Nicola, are these birds master philanderers then? Is that what you're telling us? I'm not sure if I would say put it that way, but you know what? They it does enable them to produce a lot more young per year than other species. So if you've got to put a whole month or more than a couple of uh, six weeks or something like that raising your babies, um, if you are looking after them yourself, whereas the these guys, uh, the brown-headed cowbirds, can just lay a new egg every day without putting any energy into um, trying to raise them later so they can produce a lot more young if you can. So is it the physical industry of the oil industry that is lending itself to the proliferation of these nests and the growth of the population of the brown-headed cowbird? So there's a kind of a neat story with cowbirds. So cowbirds are native to Canada. Um, and to North America, um, they originated 
they originally would be really closely associated with bison herds, which moved around the landscape. And so historically, you might have brownhead cowbirds in an area for a year or a couple of years, but then they would move on as the bison herd migrated. And so that would leave all the other birds alone for a century or, or a few decades or something like that. So they just weren't exposed to brown-headed cowbirds for as long as, uh, as they were in the past. Now, because of a whole bunch of different kind of human developments, so we've put fences permanently on the landscape, we have cattle permanently on the landscape, we have uh, agricultural activities as well as industrial activities, and all of those are providing um, sites for cowbirds to perch on and um, look for these nests. And so the cowbird populations are now stabilized to be able to stay in certain parts of the country where they historically would have just moved around with bison herds and been there for a couple of years, but then moved on. Um, so that's kind of one of the things that's really the, the main driver of the um, massive increase in cowbird populations that we've seen across North America. We need to pause the conversation, Nicola. Uh, just stand by. We need to put you on hold so we can talk about traffic as well as weather. But I actually I want to come back by discussing or by posing the question to you: Why should we care about this? And I don't mean that to sound flippant, but there is this is clearly having an effect of some sort of negative way. So why should we care? That's why we talk to the experts like yourself. So we will continue our chat with Nicola Coper, who is PhD professor, Natural Resources Institute at the University of Manitoba, talking about the brown-headed cowbird and some behaviors that are raising some alarm bells in Alberta. We'll get to that after traffic as well as weather up next. The headline is this, birds in Alberta oil fields forced to raise imposters at an alarming rate. Joining us to tell us about this story, and Brett, I think you phrased it absolutely perfectly to wrap things up, Nicola Coper. She is Professor, Natural Resources Institute, University of Manitoba. And Nicola, you were telling us about the habits of these birds, these imposters, how they pawn their their spawn off on, on other unsuspecting parents. Why is this something that we should be talking about today, and, and why? are you raising alarm bells about this? Well, um, it, it it can contribute to the declines of the grassland songbirds that are across the region. And that's one of the things that we should be really concerned about here in Manitoba and across the Canadian prairie, because uh, songbirds in grasslands are declining more rapidly than songbirds in any other habitat type. And so any of these additional threats and pressures on these songbird populations um, can help to make that, those population declines even worse. So if we want to maintain our beautiful prairies uh, in the, the sort of um, robust ecosystems that many of them still are, then we need to uh, be really considerate of how we manage them. Just got a text here from somebody who uh, seems to know a little bit about this. It says, cowbirds started this practice years ago when they followed the buffalo herds and fed off them and their droppings, which contained undigested seeds. They also dined on grubs and other bugs on the animal's back. Uh, What's your reaction to that? Is there any truth to that? Oh, yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, And so historically, the cowbird populations uh, so moved around with these bison herds, uh, but now they are able to 
to stay around all our human developments and stuff like that so they don't move anymore. Uh, so that's exactly right. I mean, they, they benefit from... They used to sit on the on the backs of the bison and, and that would help them to find nests. And in addition, as your uh, listener commented, they also fed on the, the seeds and the uh, insects that were associated with the, them as well. And now... Uh, cowboys get both of those kinds of resources from all the human development that we have across our prairies and also through our wooded areas as well. So they've been able to be really successful in not just the prairie uh, habitats, but also other ecosystems as well. So the populations of cowbirds have really increased uh, over the last couple of hundred years. So they were kind of this little part of this little mobile ecosystem. Absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly right. But now they're not mobile anymore. Very, very cool. Well, I want to thank you very much for sharing this information with us, Nicola. What should we watch for next in terms of uh, your research and and, uh, what's the next step for uh, keeping track of these little guys? Yeah, we're continuing to do a lot of research on effects of oil and gas developments on grassland birds. Uh, So we're also looking at abundance uh, on how the oil and gas influences nesting success and abundance of grassland songbirds and also uh, how it influences their behavior. So particularly the noise from the infrastructure, we're interested in whether that changes how birds are able to communicate in those areas. So we're going to keep an eye on things and uh, cross our fingers that it uh, doesn't decline too, too quickly. Nicola Coper is our guest, PhD. She's a professor, Natural Resources Institute at the University of Manitoba. Birds in Alberta, Alberta oil fields forced to raise imposters at alarming rate. And up next, we'll have a quick look at your forecast and sports. 3.38 Tuesday afternoon. He's Brett. I am Greg. Brittany Greenslade in for vacationing Julie Buckingham today. We'll join Richard Cluche in just a few moments to give us a heads up as to what they have in store between 4 and 7 on the news right here on 680 CJOB. Monday, I guess it was yesterday morning, lawyer Hirsch Walsh passed away. He had uh, an extensive history in our city. He was uh, born and and raised here, and we have uh, one of... Hirsch Walsh's uh, protégés. Is it fair to call you that, Greg Roden? Well, you know what? I've been practicing law about 39 years, and uh, I'm, I'm proud to be called a protégé of Hirsch Walsh. Yeah, a colleague, friend, and, and confidant as well. Uh, Greg Roden, tell us about Hirsch Walsh and, and why he's being remembered so fondly right now. Well, Hirsch is well-known in Winnipeg. He's well-known uh, in Calgary, and he's well-known throughout the country. Uh, he's known as a true gentleman, a uh, fierce advocate for his clients. His uh, clients um, are always well-served. Uh, he leaves no stone unturned for them. Uh, he has gained the respect of the bar, the bench, uh, his clients, and uh, the public generally. Uh, he, he is the consummate uh, criminal defense lawyer, uh, always the gentleman. And um, uh, I guess uh, in a nutshell, those are the reasons why uh, uh, he'll be missed uh, by so many and, and why so many uh, people are uh, um, outpouring in their sympathy at this point. So when you look at, uh, for example, he served as counsel for David Milgard, who spent 23 years in jail for the 1969 rape and murder of Saskatoon nurse Gail Miller. He was exonerated in July 1997. Um, is it safe to say that without the tireless efforts of uh, Hirsch Walsh that Milgard would maybe have seen a different outcome? Well, there's no question. Um, David um, 
reached out to Hirsch um, at a time where uh, uh, he simply had no hope. Uh, other lawyers had uh, looked at the case and um, uh, really were unable to uh, do anything uh, with it. Uh, Hirsch went and met with David and was immediately struck by the fact that uh, he was certain David was innocent, and of course that's been proved beyond any doubt, and uh, worked tirelessly for <laughs> decades, a uh, decade and a half to uh, secure his release and compensation. And um, I spoke to David today, and uh, David uh, understands, uh, you know, the loss and, and uh, is, is very, very grateful for all of Hirsch's efforts. Tell us about uh, Hirsch Walsh's connection to the Stephen Truscott case. Uh, well, uh, Hirsch uh, represented uh, Mr. Truscott uh, um, at uh, the Court of Appeal of Ontario and um, also arranged for compensation for um, Mr. Truscott. And uh, I was just uh, looking at the uh, uh, condolences uh, on the uh, uh, funeral parlor website, and um, the Truscott family all expressed their deepest gratitude to Hirsch for everything that uh, he did for them. So there's another example of what I've been talking about. Greg, you know, sometimes lawyers have a certain perception within our society. Tell us a, a little bit about Hirsch Walsh uh, outside the courtroom, that, that maybe a story that you could share with us that uh, I don't want to use the the word humanizes Hirsch Walsh, but maybe gives us a, a different view that we wouldn't have got a, of him a, a, outside of a courtroom. Well, you know, outside of a courtroom, um, you know, Hirsch was very personable, easy to get along with. A man who um, made, made a point of making people feel comfortable, um, as um, renowned as he was uh, and is and remains as, as a great criminal defense attorney, uh, he, he wasn't a pompous person. Um, people who've uh, written various condolences have uh, unanimously expressed how Hirsch was so easy to talk to, how he made them feel comfortable, how uh, you know he, he spoke to them, not down to them, or uh, in any way um, suggestive that uh, he was somehow a superior lawyer or, or individual because of who he was. Uh, Hirsch was a very down-to-earth, warm, loving man. Uh, he was a happy man. He had a wonderful marriage. Uh, at the time that he passed away, he had wonderful relationships uh, with his children. Uh, he had uh, a fantastic law firm uh, that he led and uh, 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 excellent lawyers who were being developed into uh, uh, fine uh, um, uh, criminal defense attorneys in their own right. So uh, there's a man who uh, was successful in his whole life, not just as a lawyer, but as, as an individual, a family man, a father, and a friend. Defense, I'll sort of piggyback uh, on what Greg was implying there. You know, defense lawyers are often portrayed in the media or movies or television shows as as kind of scummy guys who who, who represent the scum of the universe. But Hirsch Walsh uh, represented people who were wrongfully convicted. Did was is it would it be unfair or an exaggeration to describe him as maybe a little bit of a, a crusader? Well, there's no question. That, that he uh, crusaded for more than one wrongfully convicted person, and uh, whenever he steps into that venue, he seems to uh, uh, always come out ahead because of his great talents and abilities and tenaciousness. But uh, um, yes, I, 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 I think so. Greg Roden, thanks for this. We appreciate your time and your remembrance of Hirsch Walsh, and uh, our condolences go out to you because uh, uh, you were very close to Hirsch Walsh for an awfully long time, and I imagine this is a very difficult time for you. We appreciate you sharing some stories with us today. Thank you. 
Greg Roden joining us from Calgary, Alberta. Hirsch Walsh, 77 years old, passed away yesterday of a heart attack in Calgary, Alberta. And uh, Mr. Walsh uh, will be missed. Uh, Crusader's a, a great word, Brett. Uh, I'm glad you used that one. Yeah, a Crusader, you could say heroic. I mean, this is, a, you know, when you look at, at David Milgard, for example, uh, 23 years in jail, no one else would listen to him. And Hirsch Walsh says, there's a story here. And sure enough, the DNA tests proved that semen found at the crime scene didn't match his, and Larry Fisher ends up convicted uh, after Milgard is exonerated. So that wouldn't have happened without the efforts, the, the crusading efforts of Hirsch Walsh. Uh, of course, the song Wheat Kings by the Tragically Hip talks a little bit about that case. And I can remember in university at the University of Manitoba, David Milgard's mom would be there on a regular basis in Umsu, trying to generate support, awareness of her son's plight of being in jail. And then, of course, when he got released in 1997, there was uh, some some celebration, at least for, on my part, because I, I know what David Milgard's mom did for him, and I've also had the uh, opportunity to know Greg Roden uh, on a personal level uh, when I was living in Alberta, and uh, Greg's a great guy, so I appreciate him taking time with his remembrance of Hirsch Walsh today. It is 346 on 680 CJOB. We will talk about traffic as well as weather, and we will hear from Richard Cloutier and Brittany Greenslade telling us what's coming up on the news from 4 until 7. It's all starting in two minutes. Sundown in the Paris of the prairie We kings of all treasures buried Julie Buckingham enjoying some very much deserved time off. Brittany Greenslade, Global News, is here in Julie's place. Richard Cluche is also here. Brittany, what are you chasing for the show between 4 and 7 this afternoon? We've got a whole bunch going on today. We've got the updates on the Omnitrax rail uh, line today and seeing what the mayor of Churchill has to say about that. It could be done in just a few months, but will that actually happen? Probably not, is what we're hearing. Oh, man. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> the latest news today could cost up to $60 million. Omnitrack's uh, saying that they're not going to fund that. So now it's out in the air. They want to talk to stakeholders. So they're pulling up Dragon's Den. For that reason, <laughs> we're out. <laughs> <laughs> It's too much money. Yeah. Okay. What else you got, Rich? This is all about the negotiation. Uh, Perrin Biddy, who is uh, president of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, will join us on NAFTA. It's interesting. Retailers now are talking about uh, the, the price that they would pay if we relax rules allowing you to go online and buy directly from a United States retailer like Amazon and not have to pay all the taxes. And they want that exemption to go up from just the few dollars it is right now to uh, upwards of $800. So the negotiation is starting. Of course, it's the uh, subject of the Premier's uh, confab up in Edmonton. We expect to be joined later in the program by Brian Pallister, the Premier of the province, who, as we told you here on Global on Friday on 680 CJOB, that um, Pallister wants to put uh, marijuana legalization on hold. He's looking for some support from uh, the other people uh, in the room. Not sure he's going to get it. 
Ooh, that's a lone wolf. Oh, okay. lone wolf. I thought that was you after uh, after a party and after partaking. I, 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 I don't thought, indulge. I, I thought, I've, I've I thought very okay, honest. some people get the munchies. Um, you know, jokes <laughs> are always better when, out. Yeah. Jokes are always so much better when you have to explain them. So. Yeah, yeah. thanks, Brittany. <laughs> oh. Playing the role Gloves of Julie up. Buckingham is Brittany Greenstein. All right. I've been waiting for that. <laughs> We can still be friends on, right? We sure can. <laughs> I'm also reading a headline here from uh, globalnews.ca, the Winnipeg section. Winnipeg police officer facing firearm-related charges. Do we know anything more about that? We do know a little bit. It has to do with an investigation between two on-duty officers in 2016. One officer now facing a number of charges. He is a 14- or 15-year vet from the police force, so he's not a rookie. Right, Brittany Greenslade, Richard Cloutier, thank you very much. They'll have more on the news from 4 until 7 on 680 CJOB. And we got like, what, 90 seconds left for it, Jay? Got to give away some stuff. Two tickets to MTS Super Spike this weekend, Maple Grove Rugby Park. We have single-day passes, and today's question has to do with an old Nintendo game. Recognize this music, Greg? Sort of. It sounds like uh, like a, from the NES, the original uh, Nintendo video game. You're exactly I right. I don't know if it's a volleyball game, maybe. That's that's what they were playing down the hall at uh, Power 97. Beautiful. They're, getting, they're doing some sort of thing for Super Spike V-Ball, and I thought, well, from the late 1980s, the, the Nintendo Entertainment System, Super Spike V-Ball is the game. Still my favorite video game of all time. Question is simple. Who is the game developer? For a super spike V ball. The simple question. If you know the game, you're riding around on your bicycle or driving your car, going, "Oh yeah, I you, know who developed that." If you know the game, then it's an easy question. All right. But if you don't know the game, or maybe you don't want to go to super Is the spike answer Taylor Pischke? No. Is no. it Garth Pischke? It's a name of a company. Okay, I'm but- totally out. <laughs> 204-780-6868. While Jeff Fortier is fielding those calls, I want to thank Greg Mackling. I want to thank Jeff and Master Control. And I want to thank you for listening to 680 CJOB.